please, to Revelation chapter 11. And I'm glad that all of you are staying with me through this study of the book of Revelation. I, I told you way back at the very beginning that some of you would get bogged down and I wasn't sure you were going to make it all the way through and you might finally burn out before we get to the end of this study. I uh, recently heard about a preacher, or was told about a preacher who was preaching on Revelation and rather than taking a... Um, a systematic approach to the book. He just sort of hit the highlights, and then he called that an exposition of Revelation. Well, we don't really want to do that because we believe that every word that's in the Word of God is put there for a purpose. Uh, God doesn't speak superfluously, and so I think it's good for us to simply take the entire Word of God and to explain what it teaches. So, quite frankly, when you do that, it takes a long time to do it. Uh, but I mentioned before that as we go through the books of the Bible, it really doesn't make any difference how long it takes for us to get through, because as we go through, we'll touch on just about every major doctrine there is to talk about, and then we'll speak about some peripheral doctrines as well. So we don't really do any brief surveys of the Scripture, and that's why on uh, Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights, we're going through three separate books of the Bible all at one time. Now, having said that, talking about giving exposition, doing details, we're in a part of the book of Revelation that's its own synopsis. We're in a place in this 11th chapter where before we enter into the second half of the book, there is a very packed outline here in four or five verses that cover the remaining chapters of the book. All the details are left out here, and we know from what's written that the outcome is sure. So what I'm doing tonight in the, to the next message and the one, of course, previous to this and these three messages, preaching on the synopsis of the end, we're getting a fast forward view towards the end of the book of Revelation. And I promise you that everything that we discuss tonight, we will discuss in detail at a later time. So if you don't get it all now, if I'm too brief for you, then you'll just know we're going to get a full treatment later. But let's go to our text tonight, beginning in verse number 15 of chapter 11. And here we see the synopsis of the end. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's word, beginning in verse number 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we ask you to bless our study. Uh, open up the Word of God to us tonight, Lord, so we might learn what you would have us to know from this part, this part of your Holy Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And the seventh angel sounded. Let me just remind you of where we are. 
The seventh angel is the one that blows the seventh trumpet. There are a succession of seven trumpets that are blown during the opening of the seal, the seventh seal on redemption scroll. And as we've talked about this so many times before, this scroll is the title deed to the earth. It's the plan by which God will redeem the world from the curse of sin. When the seventh seal is open, seven angels step forward and they blow seven trumpets. They blow them one at a time, and as each trumpet is blown, there is new judgment that comes from God. The last three trumpets are the most significant ones because they're called the woe judgments. God says, woe, woe, woe. Three woes are pronounced, and with each one of those woes, there comes a horrific judgment from God. Those three woes correspond to the last three trumpets that are blown. So the first woe corresponds to trumpet number five, and with the blowing of that trumpet, there was uh, a horde of demons that were unleashed upon the earth out of the bottomless pit, and they were stinging locust-like creatures that torment the people of the earth. Then the second woe corresponds to the sixth trumpet, and with that trumpet, when it blows, that brings forth an army of evil angels that are 200 million strong, and they come and destroy one-third of the earth's population. And then we come to the third woe, and with the third woe, there is intensified judgment. Uh, God says, woe, woe, woe. And that third woe adds up to the multiplied judgment of God. So all of this is adding up, and that corresponds to the blowing of the seventh trumpet. In this seventh trumpet, we'll see seven vile judgments. These are called bowls of wrath that are poured out, and things just keep getting worse until Christ comes to set up his earthly kingdom. But we don't actually get to that part, to uh, that part of this seventh seal, uh, until we come to chapters 15 and 16. And in the meantime, we're looking, we'll be looking at chapter 12 through 14, and those digress, take us all the way back to the beginning of the tribulation period, and they give us a history of the Antichrist. Now, beginning in the uh, tribulation period, we see the Antichrist arises, and then we trace his career all the way to this point that we're at here tonight. In chapter 12, we also go back to the beginning of creation. But from that point, then the story unfolds the Antichrist. But here in chapter 11, there's this synopsis. Uh, God includes this little respite in the text in order to give his people a chance, you might say, to regroup and to refocus on who is really in control. So in verse 15, the scripture says, And the seventh angel sounded. Now going back to last week, we first of all talked about the trumpet that sounds. And again, this is the seventh trumpet. This is the trumpet that's the last in the series of seven. But as I mentioned last week, this trumpet is not to be confused with the one that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That trumpet is called a last trumpet, but it's a signal for the dead in Christ to arise and for those who are believers, living believers in Christ, to be translated into Christ's kingdom. And so that trumpet sounds forth the initial phase of Christ's second coming. So the dead come out of their graves and the living are transformed. But this trumpet that we're reading about here is not that trumpet. But rather, this is a trumpet that serves two purposes. It's a trumpet for judging. It's a trumpet that says that God is going to announce these woes that come upon the earth and he's bringing in that kingdom on the earth. But it's also a trumpet of crowning. It's a trumpet that signals the coronation of Christ. And here we find Jesus enforcing that final act 
that will be the crushing blow to the opposition of Satan and will destroy his kingdom forever. And as I said, once again, bring in the everlasting kingdom of Christ. Now, secondly, we looked at the triumph of the king. Christ rules in a spiritual kingdom right at this moment as we're speaking. If you're a child of God, you are in Christ's spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom, but all the kingdoms of the world, the physical kingdoms of the world, are allied under uh, Satan, and there's this one world, one worldwide government that is ruled by him, and all the kingdoms of the world are a part of that one kingdom. Now, what we see, though, in verse number 15 are these words, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Now, even though right now, as we read this, there is much action that will take place towards the end of this book, yet the Word of God puts it in such a way that the outcome is so sure, it's as if it has already happened. Now, in the Greek language, there is a way of expressing that. We don't have it in our language, but as the Word is spoken here, it's spoken of as if it has already happened, even though it hasn't happened. Now, marvelously and just wonderfully, those of you that are God's children, that you've been saved, that your final salvation is precisely the same. You're right now, not right now in heaven. You're here upon this earth, of course. Your soul and your spirit are saved. But yet the body has not yet been redeemed from the curse of sin. And yet the scriptures teach that our final salvation is so sure that our entrance in heaven is spoken by the Apostle Paul as he says, God hath quickened us together with Christ. He has raised us together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so the Word of God writes it for you as a child of God as if it's already happened and as if you are right now sitting in the throne of God, or at the throne of God. So that's the language that we have here in Revelation 11, verse 15. Now, we also notice about Christ's triumph that the world has a singular response to it. And what is that response? They hate it. They're against it. Uh, They reluctantly and defiantly cling to their allegiance to Satan's kingdom. And the world does that in such a way today that there is not one single kingdom in all the world that can be rightly called a kingdom of Christ. So America is not a kingdom of Christ. We're a part of that one worldwide kingdom of Satan, and America, nor any nation in the world, will bow until they're forced to do so. Now, thirdly, then, we looked at the timeless kingdom, and he shall reign forever and ever. When Christ comes to take control, he'll never relinquish it. The millennial kingdom is the last kingdom that will be upon the earth. And when those 1,000 years come to a close, the nations will rise up against Christ again, but their attempts are foiled, and then God destroys the earth by fire, renovates it, and then brings in the new heaven and the new earth. So he forever reigns. The millennial kingdom is the beginning of the eternal government of Christ over the entire universe. Now that catches us up with the first part of the message. And so now we come to the fourth point here, and that is the temperament of the world. And the temperament of the world is quite different from what we see in heaven. And those, uh, the two reactions mark a sharp distinction between the spirits of just men made perfect and those who are in the kingdom of darkness. Now the distinction is the difference between heaven and hell. The distinction is the difference between everlasting rejoicing and everlasting retribution. 
Now let's notice the distinction. First, we're given a scene in heaven. And this is the acclaim of the saints. What we see in heaven is the acclaim of the saints. Verse 16. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. So the 24 elders that are seated around the throne of God, they fall down from their seats, they fall upon their faces, they worship God, and they begin this song of praise that speaks of the everlasting nature of our God. They praise the God who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the God who is God forever. Now, I don't know if you remember who the 24 are, but these 24 elders represent every person who's been saved by the blood of Christ. They're representative of the Old Testament patriarchs, of the prophets, of all the people that are in the Old Testament who worshipped Jehovah God and believed in the coming Messiah. And they also represent those that are in the church age. Uh, These are those who believed when Christ came. They became a part of his church. And so that means you and me. And uh, I don't know the names of these 24 elders. Some have conjectured that they're the 12 greatest men who ever lived in the Old Testament and then 12 apostles of the Lamb that we find in the New Testament. I don't know, but because the Scriptures don't tell us who they are. But I do know this, they represent me and they represent you if you are a Christian. So what that means is that we have a presence at God's throne. Now there are millions, perhaps even billions of people that will be in heaven But there's not one of God's children who gets lost in the shuffle. There's not one of God's people who lives in a back alley in heaven. Nobody lives under a bridge there. We're all represented at the throne of God. So the 24 elders fall on their faces and they praise God because he has now taken control. Thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And when I read that, I, I think about these fanciful, mythical, ridiculous stories, is what I would call them, of people who say that they've died and gone to heaven, and now they've come back to tell us all about it. Well, here we see the greatest of all saints sitting in the highest positions around the throne of God. And what does it say about them? They fall on their faces because they cannot sit, they cannot stand in the presence of God. One thing you'll notice about all the storytellers that talk about having gone to heaven in the books that they write, not one of them ever talks about how they could not stand in God's presence. Instead, there's this familiarity about it, like they're God's long-lost cousin who's really glad to have their company. You know, somebody really has a woefully degraded, mixed-up idea of our sovereign God. He rules with all power and authority and majesty, and he is glorious in his presence. But the reaction of the elders is to praise God because he is finally ruling and reigning. And so the saints and the martyrs of Christ, they've all been longing for this moment. They've lived in its anticipation for so long that when it finally comes about, they can't do anything other than to praise God. They just gush out with praises of joy because our God reigns. But there is an unfathomable gap between the saints in heaven and sinners on earth. So we have the acclaim of the saints on one hand, but then we also have the anger of sinners. So on the other hand is the anger of the nations. In the 18th verse it says, And the nations were angry. 
Now remember, we're talking here about a synopsis of the end. Again, there's a lot to take place before this uh, finally comes to an end, but all of the nations of the world are still going about all their plotting and their scheming. They're still working as much evil as they possibly can. They will not relinquish their, their, their evil thoughts against God. They are not repentant at God's judgments. And every blow that God brings against them just increases their enmity against Him. And so they're angry because God's wrath has come. And what they believe is that God has no right to impose judgment upon them. They're unresponsive to their own wickedness. They keep on excusing themselves because of their own selfishness. And they are determined they will serve self. They will, they will serve Satan. And anything that imposes a restriction upon their decadence only makes them more determined against Christ. Now we're also seeing here an overview of the millennial kingdom. And remember, the people of the earth that go into the millennial kingdom are not saved people. These are the same old wicked people who have the same old wicked hearts. Now, if you remember the passage in Isaiah, it speaks of the millennial kingdom this way. Uh, Isaiah 2, verse number 4. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, there are many, many preachers and people who have no idea what that means. Now, people will quote that, and uh, if you watch talk shows and things like that, you'll see Father so-and-so or Reverend this or that who talks about these things as if this is something that men are able to achieve. And so they think that in this particular time that people are going to be different, that People are going to put down their weapons, and instead of making war, there will be peace. Weapons of destruction are turned into farming implements. So now we're feeding the world instead of killing the world. So everybody becomes an Al Gore. Everybody wants to save the planet, and everybody goes green, and there's flowers behind everybody's ear. Well, you have no idea. I mean, you really don't understand the picture here. These are evil men that go into this kingdom, and they have the rebuke of God. They're forced to destroy their weapons. And each one of them that they break down and they take out the firing pins, every time that they do it, they're muttering under their breath, I'm going to have my time. I'm going to have my vengeance. You just wait and see. Now, you'll notice what the Scripture says in Revelation 19, verse 15, and this is in the finer details that are left out. In Revelation 19, 15, it says, And out of his mouth, that's speaking of Christ, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress, winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Christ rules with the rod of iron. Why? I mean, why do you have to rule peaceful flower children with the rod of iron? Well, it's because they're not peaceful. Uh, war is still in their hearts. The hatred is still there. And, and these people are no closer to personal holiness than they ever were. What happens here is they're forced to knuckle down. It's against their nature to live in a righteous kingdom, and folks, they hate every minute of it. And if they aren't shackled by iron, they're making shivs of iron. That's what they would do. And so the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15 that in order for Christ to rule, Christ must put the kingdoms of this world under his feet. He has to subdue them. Now, you may remember when we 
went through 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we talked about this. And at that time, I gave the example of Joshua in the Old Testament. Remember how he captured those five kings of Canaan? Then he brought them out and made them bow down before the people of Israel. And he told the leaders to come and put their feet on their necks. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is going to do in the millennial kingdom. He'll force them to bow. He'll put his feet on their necks. And they're pinned so that they can't do what they would otherwise do. So they're powerless against him. So Reverend so-and-so, he has no idea what he's talking about when he thinks that, you know, this peaceful... It will be a peaceful kingdom, no doubt about that. But it won't because men, because men made it that way. Uh, men are unrighteous, so it's not their idea. And so Reverend so-and-so, he'll go into that millennial kingdom kicking and screaming like everybody else. So the millennial kingdom, then, is not a time of smiles and joy. There's not a lot of skipping and hopping around because people are so happy. And that's because they're evil at their heart and they're angry because Christ is ruling and reigning. Now, how many times have I told you that the only one who can change an evil heart is God? You can't put people into a perfect environment and change their hearts. You can't give them government assistance and pay for everything for them and change their hearts. And you can't give them a Harvard education and change their hearts. Only God changes a wicked heart. Now, they don't have the power in them to do it. And so, after a thousand years of perfect government, of perfect peace and righteousness, Christ lets the pressure off, and then they pop right back up. They start to reassemble all of the weapons. They put all the firing pins back in. They pick up their blackjacks, and they go right back at it again. They are so angry, they will not relent. And so, they're not going to look back on this time of Christ ruling and reigning upon the earth and say, well, that was a pretty good government, you know. I mean, it was, it was a pretty good thing all those years. There was no crime. We could leave our doors open at night. Uh, I could go out and get my newspaper and the neighbor's dog wouldn't bite me anymore. Christ is such a good king, so let's serve him. We love him. We want to serve him forever. That's not what they do. They go right back to the very worst. Why? Because it's in their hearts. It hasn't been changed. And they're not going to live in righteousness until they're forced to do so. Now, folks, what I'm giving you here is the reality of this world. Now, you and I that know Christ, we're waiting. We're anticipating this. We'll, we'll go into that millennial kingdom ruling and reigning with him with joy. But those who are unregenerate care nothing at all for God's kingdom. They don't want it. They despise it. And so you have this huge fundamental difference between the acclaiming saints and the angry sinners. Well, now we go on to verse number 18, and we see another overview here. No details are given, but we have a just, uh, just a very brief statement here about the time of judgment. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. This is a general statement about judgment and not a statement about a general judgment. Now, hear me again on that. Listen carefully. This is a general statement about judgment and not a statement about a general judgment. So you can't look at this scripture and draw from it that all at one time and all in one place that God is going to judge every person saved or lost and we are all going to appear at one judgment. What we have here is an overview. 
And the only inference that you can draw from what's written here is that every person is going to be judged. Sooner or later, everybody is going to be judged, but we're not all going to be judged at the same judgment. There are two judgments for two different purposes. God's people are not going to be judged like Satan's people. And I might add this as well, that there are only two groups of people in the world. There are God's people and there are Satan's people. And you're either one or the other. There is no in-between. There's no other category. There are no middle categories. There is no agnostic category. There is no undecided category. You're in one or the other. In America, a pollster comes over at your house or he calls you during dinner time. And he says, what are you for? Who are you for? What do you think about this? And you say, don't bother me. I'm eating right now. So you hang up on him. But some of you might stay on the line. And so he says, well, who are you for? And you say, well, I'm for this person or I'm for that person. Or what do you think about this? And he says, you say, well, I'm not so sure. I don't really have an opinion about that. And so when the poll comes out, they say, well, here are so many for and here are so many against. And here's the percentage of people that are undecided. You don't get those kind of options in the spiritual world. Jesus identified people as sheep or goats. There are no geep and there are no shoats. They're either sheep or goats. And he said this, I'm going to divide the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are his and the goats are the devil's. Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. I don't have time to develop the whole thought here tonight, but the sheep were always sheep and the goats were always goats. You don't turn goats into sheep. And what I mean here is that God had an elect people before the foundation of the world. And in the Scripture, they're always referred to as the sheep. And they were always sheep. They just have to wait until God speaks to their heart to realize that they are, and they come to faith in Christ. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And just before that, Jesus said to the goats, But ye believe not. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. So there's the difference. The sheep will believe, but the goats won't. The sheep hear his voice, and they come to him in faith, but the goats don't. Now, that's another message for another time. And just like this passage that we're reading in Revelation, I've given you a synopsis of a doctrine, and uh, sometime later... We'll probably get into all that, and it's the most fascinating and good news that you'll ever hear. But let me get back to this. We've got a three-part message here, so I just want to go a little bit further, and we'll get into all this before we're through in the next message. But all will be judged, but there's more than one judgment. Now, here we have a synopsis that crams together what is, in fact, two judgments that are separated by a period of 1,000 years. Now, you can get the next two blanks right now if you want to on your listening sheet. There are two judgments. One is the judgment of believers, and the other is the judgment of unbelievers. Now, these two judgments have two different official titles. The judgment of believers is the judgment seat of Christ, and the judgment of unbelievers is the great white throne judgment. Now, these are not the same judgments, and they don't occur at the same time. Well, let's talk about the judgment of believers first. Uh, This is the judgment seat of Christ. And according to the Scripture, this is a judgment of rewards. It's not a time to find out whether people are saved. 
because the very fact that you're at this judgment is because you are a child of God. That's the proof that you are. This is a time that Christ judges us for our faithful service. Now, again, we're talking about a synopsis here. We don't have a a time to go into a full-blown exposition of the judgment seat of Christ. But you need to know this, that Christ is going to judge believers for their faithfulness. What God does is he keeps a record of everything that you do, and if you're not faithful, you can lose your reward. The Apostle John said, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, obviously, what we have there is an accommodation for human understanding because God does not have pencils with erasers. So it doesn't mean that you have a reward and then you lost it. This is like saying if you're not faithful, you'll lose the reward that you could have had. You see, God doesn't write things down and say, well, whoops, uh, I didn't know that was going to happen, so I better erase that. And there are people who believe in falling from grace. They think that you can lose their salvation. And so they think that God must have a stockpile of pencils with erasers because he's busily writing names in and erasing names back out. And he does it on a consistent basis. And then you have some people who think that, well, God has his book of life and everybody's name was in the book of life. But then God found out that you wouldn't believe and so he had to erase your name out of the book. Or that the book wasn't even filled in until God found out what you were going to do And so like the old song says, you got saved and now there's a new name that's written down in heaven. See my previous reference to sheep and goats. So somehow, you know, we're just kind of trying to get back into that same old sermon again that's for another time. But it is possible to lose your rewards. God rewards us for our faithfulness and our faithfulness will help us to achieve the reward. Now notice the way that verse number 18 puts this. And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great. Prophets, saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, are inclusive terms. And what that simply means, all of the faithful. Everybody who is a child of God, who serves God, will receive a reward in heaven. So when does that happen? What's the time frame for this judgment? Well it will occur before the millennial reign because the scriptures teach that those who are saved are going to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. I personally don't believe that there will be anybody saved during the millennial reign, and that's because the Bible never talks about another judgment. There's only two judgments, the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment, and so there's not a third judgment for those who would be saved during the millennium. So that leads me to believe that no one is actually saved during the millennial period. So then we have this other judgment, and that is the great white throne judgment. And the scripture speaks of this as a judgment of unbelievers. So there's a reward for the saints, but the Bible says that unbelievers will be destroyed and they'll be delivered up for eternal punishment and death in hell. That is the great white throne judgment. Now again, we'll come to details later, but the scripture establishes the time of this judgment And it's the last act of God before he brings in the new heavens and the new earth. We find this in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And there were judged... And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now the missing names in the book of life are those of unbelievers. These are the mockers. These are people who would not willingly bow to Christ and to the sovereignty of God. These are people that throughout all of the ages, they would not come to faith in Christ. They continued in their sins, and they're not covered under the blood of Christ's sacrifice. Now, friends, what we have here is a warning to unbelievers because the language that we have in this passage of Scripture is, yes, Christ's reign is sure, yes, Our salvation is sure, and yes, our place is sure, but yes, also God's damnation is sure. There is no escaping this. So there is no unbeliever who's going to wiggle out from under the watchful eye of God. And so, as we say, there is no place in heaven where the uh, saved, the redeemed, are going to be out of the presence of God There are no bridges, I said, that we live under, anything like that. So it is with a person who is an unbeliever. There is no place to escape. There is no cave to hide in. There is no secret place where God cannot find them because God is going to judge every last one of them. One way or another, we're all going to stand before God. Now, I hope that you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and not at this judgment. Because the great white throne judgment is one of eternal death in the fires of hell. And don't think it's over in a moment. You know, some people are going about teaching annihilationism. That, yes, well, maybe there is a hell, but when you, when, when you go, you just burn up immediately and that's the end of it. No, 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 no. Not according to Scripture. This is the place of an everlasting fire of torment. But the good news for all of us is that God has provided a means of escape. These times are not on us yet. In the time that we're living right now, God grants repentance and faith. Now, in that time, it's going to be over with. And when Jesus comes back, it's an event that could happen at any moment, even while I'm speaking to you right now, Jesus could come again. And the important thing is for everybody here that we have repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, thank the Lord. He hasn't shut the door yet. But the time is coming when he will. And so people must be encouraged to come to faith in Jesus Christ through the, blood, through the cross of Christ and through his blood. Now, I hope that you have done that or you will do it now. The difference is in the details. And you don't want to leave that detail out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to spend in your word tonight. We just ask you, Lord, that... You would bless our people, and we do pray if there's anyone here who does not know you as their personal Savior, that they would come to you in repentance and faith before it's too late for them to do so. We fully expect, we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We believe that he could come back even before this night is over. And help us to give that message to people 
so that they might understand there is something they need to be saved from, an everlasting death in the fires of hell. Bless us now as we sing, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.